0: My name is Colin Drucker, and this, of course, is the very first episode of In the Details, which is a a celebration of nuance. Really, if the devil is In the Details, then I am the Father Karras- of nuance here to exercise it for your listening pleasure. If you're already a listener of my other podcast, All Right Mary, uh, which of course is all things Drag Race, the world of Drag Race, the paradigm that RuPaul has created with that little b d b d TV show, um, then this should come as no surprise that this would be a podcast all about nuance. So of course, here in the details, I'm sure RuPaul's Drag Race will come up here and there because, you know, drag is life and life is drag and et cetera and so forth. But this is really kind of expanding the focus to movies, TV shows, and then zooming in on micro moments acting choices scenes that you can't stop talking about scenes that when you find somebody else who knows that movie or knows that show you immediately say oh my god remember that scene where dot 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 On this podcast we're kind of finishing that sentence and it's really the scenes and the moments and the things that that excite me and uh it should come as no surprise uh maybe maybe it is a surprise i don't know who am I to tell you how to feel? But I feel like a lot of the a lot of the nuances, a lot of the details, a lot of those a lot of those acting choices that excite me are typically typically women. um not that not that men don't have nuances to offer, but I find uh, that's always been true for me. I've always gravitated towards the female characters in a TV show or in a movie. And in some cases, it was like, I wouldn't be interested in seeing a movie if there were no women in it, you know? There are certain movies I feel like I'm never going to watch because there's no women in it. Like, I'm never going to watch Reservoir Dogs because there's no women in it. I'm probably never going to see Deliverance because I think there's, like, one woman, and I think she's at the bottom of the cast, so she's probably not in any of the important scenes. Like, if you tell me, oh, yeah, there's this scene where a woman has, like, this really emotional monologue, I I will... I, it, it'll be it'll be a column-shaped cutout in the wall of just me running to go see that. I don't know where I'm running to. I could probably watch it on my phone, right? Um, but I'm running. I'm running. This is my passion for this kind of stuff. I feel like that's, that's a good context to know going in, is that chances are it's going to be a lot of women, um, and specifically, or often, we'll be featuring um, one of my probably favorite things, which is... Best Supporting Actress Nominees and Winners. <laughs> yeah, that's right, folks. Um, that's what I'm bringing to the table. I, I don't know what it is about that category or that concept, but I'm always fascinated by um, some supporting female role that, like, is spinning straw into gold. Um, like, I felt that way about, I guess it was when the Oscars got n- announced uh, most recently. And, you know, I, I haven't really been watching like anything new that's been coming out. I've mostly just been keeping up with, you know, re-watching The Office and Golden Girls and things like that, uh, the important things. So I saw, like, of course, I was like, who are the nominees? Um, and for which category? Of course, Best Supporting Actress. And it was like, Mary J. Blige? nominated for Mudbound. I had not heard of Mudbound. I didn't know she was in it. Then I didn't know she was even like, I didn't know she was up for consideration. And they just like flipped the script. I was like, I just need to see it because Mary J. Blige is doing potentially Oscar worthy work. I even briefly considered just doing a podcast that was purely dedicated to Best Supporting Actress nominees and winners throughout the years. And we would just talk about them every episode. And I mean, that sounds like a lot of fun. And, and it's, Something we can totally do here. In fact, you know, deep tease, it's something that will be happening on In the Details. I feel like a Best Supporting Actress corner is always welcome on my on my block, whatever I'm saying. In any event, um, I feel like that is going to inform a lot of what happens on, the, on future episodes. A lot of it's going to go back to is there is there a woman you know acting? For example, I think an episode that will probably come out you know next couple episodes. I think um, I want to do one just on uh, Toni Collette and just some of the different acting moments she's had that I've really loved. Uh, in particular, because I really want to go see Hereditary. Um, uh, everyone I've talked to has said, a they've said, oh yeah, it's like super fucking scary. And well, I don't like I don't like blood and guts and gore. I don't like watching people get killed. That all just doesn't sit well with me um i do love i do love the operatics of a horror movie and so i do love kind of the the emotional heights i really get into that and so what i what i kind of love about hereditary is then the other thing i hear is that tony Collette is just amazing in it and so um i need to see that because it sounds like what what it is is really this mix of like supernatural horror meets like dysfunctional family drama and these are, I mean, you know, these are these are up so many of my alleys. They are, you know, they are invading my entire city. Um, th- this is this is exactly what I want to see in a movie. So, with all of that context now, I think we should really get into it. I think we should really start talking about face journeys, and I think we should start with the beginning. We should, uh, to take some inspiration from legendary drag race contestant and drag queen uh, royalty, Latrice Royale, uh, we need to know where this music is coming from. We need to know where face journeys in modern TV and movies really started. And uh, I'm going to give you the abridged answer. To me, it starts with silent films. And it starts with the economy of silent films. Now, I am... No expert in silent films, or even like a huge aficionado. I think that I've often written off silent film as something that I would, I would watch from a sort of like, oh, look what they did back in the day. Look how they did that. Look how they figured that out with the little, uh, you know, uh, opportunities they had at hand. Look what they worked with with the scraps at hand and those those uh, simpler times, and not really appreciating that. Um, sure, maybe things were not as technologically advanced, but, uh, just cause we have Jerry Bruckheimer doesn't mean we have like a more advanced emotional storytelling going on in film. You know what I mean? Like that didn't like CGI didn't move the needle necessarily. And so I, I don't know what your feelings are on silent film because this isn't really a dialogue. It's more of a monologue, but, um, if you are not interested in it or it's not something you've explored, I'd love to give you two entry points that I found really accessible. And I think are really great um, foundational contexts for the importance of a, of a face journey of um, not having dialogue to rely on, not having a lot of, you know, fancy camera work or uh, even really like complex cinematography to uh, draw more emotion out or to or to. Tell a deeper story. I mean, you have the music, which is just basically dancing as fast as it can to um, propel the story forward. But then you have the actors, and you have this, you know, sort of pantomime style that they're doing. And I think what's really interesting with a lot of silent film is when that almost exaggerated style and the, the kind of way that silent film, the way the film moves, like sometimes it doesn't feel. It doesn't kind of move in the way that our emotions move. You know what I mean? It's a little too fast. That's um, just just the way I think. You know, the the films were processed. I don't see. I I really don't know. I don't want to step into territory I don't know how to talk about. But in any event, you know what I'm talking about. But I love when you do see those moments where an actor has made a choice, or everyone collaborating in that scene has created a moment that feels like it could be happening right now. And feels just as real and just as authentic. And I think when you see those examples in silent film, it just creates this amazing through line and this access point to, like, a whole world of cinema that I think is certainly getting lost. Much of it is lost. And um, there's a lot to, to draw from. There's a lot to celebrate there. Um, spoiler alert, there will be a silent film. On this list this week. Uh, so consider this an act one gun. I know I shouldn't have told you, but I can't help it. Um, in any event, uh, two examples I want to give you are two recommendations. One is this movie, The Wind, um, which I believe is from maybe the... Oh, I can't remember. I should have done my research, but you have IMDb. So you search The Wind. It stars Lillian Gish. Lillian Gish was... Um, she was the, oh, the, the Catherine Hepburn of her time, the, the Jennifer Lawrence. I think that she was, I think that she was like the Meryl Streep of her time. I mean, she, um is considered one of the icons of silent film. And a lot of that is just due to like the complex emotional landscape of her face and and her eyes. Like what she can say with her eyes is so fascinating. And this movie The Wind, um, which is about this this girl that I think she goes to to stay with some family on this like farm in like uh you know the middle of the dust bowl. It, it basically she's just in this like very desolate place and just starts to go mad with just like the constant wind blowing outside. And it's this movie of watching this woman go mad, and you think, oh, this is gonna be maybe not exciting, but it's it's fascinating, certainly from an acting point of view, to see all of the work that she's doing. And there's this whole segment where she just like she really starts to lose her marbles. It's this whole like climactic sequence, and it's just fascinating. It's so fascinating to watch. I think that is just an example of of what silent film is capable of is, is worth seeing. And then probably my, the example that I would, I would recommend first, if the wind isn't really like catching your sails, you know what I mean, is Sunrise. Sunrise, I, I don't even know where to begin. I think, I'm not going to tell you too much about it, except that it's beautiful and it's so engaging. And there is a scene with a dog being really good that. I just like open mouthed sobbed I, and nothing happens to the dog. It doesn't die. Don't worry. I, I, I think there's a website like does the dog die.com uh, sunrise would not be on that list. It's amazing acting. I believe the actress, uh, the main actress, Janet Gaynor, I think she was nominated or won an Oscar for this movie. <clears throat> so that's always worth as well. And she totally earns it. She, I had never seen anything she'd done before and it's just a really, um, beautiful movie. And when, if you go into that mindset of like, oh, what were they capable of back in the day, it's pretty incredible the spectacle that they create in this movie. Um, and so, I, again, I, I celebrate these movies as just like awesome examples of A, what silent film could do, and B, what the face journey can do. Um, and where it started. And I'm sure there's so many examples, you know I'm going to miss like tons of perfect examples, but um, I'm curating a specific list from what I know. Anyway, now that we've covered off on that, I think we should get going, and we should start talking about our first face journey of this episode, which, of course, is Nicole Kidman in the 2004 film Birth. You know that I loved Sean. You know Mm -hmm. so much. It's taken me this long, and I can't get him out of my system. I can't. Too many memories. I understand that this is gonna sound crazy. I've met somebody who uh, who seems to be Sean. There's this real Rosemary's Baby quality to birth, um, and it feels very deliberate. You know, uh, Nicole Kidman, she down, you know, she's she's got the Mia Farrow pixie cut and everything. Um, it's very much set on the Upper West Side, and there's really kind of this parallel story of. There's someone inside of someone else, and I'm not quite sure if it's who I think it is. You know what I mean? And in this case, uh, Nicole Kidman's character, Anna, is confronted by this ten year old boy who is claiming to be her dead husband, uh, reincarnated. And he has he he's come with receipts. He knows things about her that only Shaw and her ex-husband would know or her you know past husband would know um because of course, she is remarried now. And so the scene that we are going to be talking about today is, Uh, It's this moment early in the movie. It's after she's been confronted by Sean the first time. And she and her husband uh, have tickets to the opera. And it's really the first time that we watch Kidman's character process what's been presented to her. Uh, She's been confronted by this kid who is saying, I'm, you know, I'm Sean. I'm your, you know, I'm your husband. And it's all so insane like it's like you try to put it on paper and you're like none of this makes sense but there's this small nagging voice that's like yeah but it kind of does something about it does something doesn't ring completely false and this scene is amazing um i think some some face journeys and like single take shots like you kind of see the artistry you see the director and the cinematographer you see kind of everyone at work creating a moment the actor included and this certainly feels that way. This feels very deliberate. What we're witnessing is we see uh, Kidman's character and her husband arriving probably, you know, two minutes late to the opera. It's interesting because as they're arriving, the music um, is swelling. And in a way, it's like this the scene, the music that's going on in the scene becomes kind of the score for the moment that we're about to watch. This scene is is not just about watching Anna process you know for the first time really this is her first chance to like sit not talk not interact with anybody and not watch anything even she's just listening and just it's like she's letting the music lull her into this place of like okay I think this is where we're gonna think about this you know um, it's, it's it's not just about that it's it's, it's also just about um, the effect of music, what music can do to you, how, I mean, we all have those songs that we listen to uh, when we want a good cry, when we want to get something out of our system, when we need some catharsis. Uh, and, you know, I'm by far not the expert, and there are so many other people who have expounded upon this in much greater degrees, of the of the emotional effects of music. So what happens then? The scene is, I mean, I think it's about, I would say it's about two minutes long, all completely continuous. Uh, single take, the the camera zooms in on Anna, kind of a portrait view of her sitting there in her seat, and you can see that thing in her eyes, and it's that thing that Nicole Kidman does. You know, I, 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 I seem to write Nicole Kidman off as like, I think, oh, she's not very expressive, or um, she feels a bit cold, or there's just, there isn't the same, there isn't the same kind of nuance, I can't get around that word, as I might see in someone like Frances McDormand, and I mean, I'm assuming uh, Nicole has had some kind of uh, she's she's either got a really interesting beauty regimen, 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 ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, regimen. Uh, she's either got a really extensive like beauty regimen, or you know, she's done a little Botox, you know, tighten some things up. I'm not shaming that. I'm just saying that like I think I've had that perception, and so I kind of decided, oh, she's not a very expressive actress. And the thing that I forget about Nicole Kidman is two things. One is when she, she oh she often chooses these really complex characters. She, she doesn't, she doesn't choose easy roles. You know, I feel like there's, there's always so much going on underneath the surface for a lot of her characters. And, she takes on more than I think I give her credit for. Um, I feel like the golden example right now that I don't even, I haven't even finished watching is Big Little Lies. I keep hearing that like she's really incredible in it. And what I've seen the first few episodes, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, this is like, you know, she's kind of steely and she's kind of, um, you know, she's, she's got that like cool control of the room thing that she does. But I think I'm just on the, on the cusp of some therapy episode where we really see her emote. And it's where her emoting happens. I think if we're going to not worry about her forehead is her eyes. And that's the other thing that I remembered watching this and that are so featured in this scene is the power of Nicole Kidman's eyes. She, she has this thing where it's, it's piercing and it's, there's, there's just like, there's so much going on behind them, you know? And she's just interesting to watch process things. And I think, what I love about the scene even more is that we're not watching a really drawn out face journey and we're not seeing really obvious emotions um, you know, being processed. I think you know. There's another example um, we were talking about. Well, we, you and I, me. I was talking about Tony Collette before, and there's this movie she was in called The Way Back, which maybe I'll bring up again in the Tony Collette episode. Um, but there's this great, there's this great video online um, called the. It's this series called The Gush, um, where it's just someone kind of creating a little video essay talking about how much they love a certain. It's been a lot of actresses. They've been featuring featuring different actresses and women in film that they love. And there are these great little celebratory features. And the one about Toni Collette, um, it's all about how she just is like, she just is an iconic movie mom, how she just kills it playing moms and movies. And I totally agree. But there's this whole thing that happens at the end of this movie, the way back, um, that is, it, you're seeing distinct emotional experiences going on in her face in different moments. And we're really able to read it. Whereas I feel like Nicole Kidman in Birth the benefit of having it be the single take shot, just zoomed in on her, never cutting away, um, not letting us kind of look at anything else but her face, is that you have to sit there and slow down. And I love when, especially when modern movies force you to slow down, it's like, let's look at the details. Let's go in the details. That is the name of this podcast, as you may be aware, because of your iTunes, it says the name. Um, and so like, because we slow down and we're just looking at her face, we're watching this really quiet journey of, of the way that, the way that something dawns on you and the way that you kind of, I guess it's kind of like waking up, right? If we're going to use that Dawn reference, I think that's what Anna is going through in this scene is, slowly waking up and we see it rising really in her eyes and we see these tiny things happen we see um the ways her eyes start to redden the way that her mouth kind of starts to bunch into a frown and the way that the music continuously supports that to the point that it all kind of leads up to the the climax of this face journey is is if she's going to cry because we're seeing her get to that point of like the tears are forming enough to her for her to start to break, and just as that's starting to happen, her husband turns and says something in her ear, and she kind of like whispers and like glances at him, and there's this amazing little um, this this bit of annoyance that just kind of dashes across her face. Um, he's and that, that's so representative, I think, of, of the whole story, the whole movie. Here she is processing this idea that her her husband, who was you know torn away from her ten years ago, that. You know, there's the possibility that he exists, that he's alive in some way, and then here is her her second husband kind of interrupting that and bringing her back to what her reality is now. And I think about that in terms of the story and in terms of, again, the music. I think in that moment in her head, going through whatever questions and whatever realizations and whatever inconvenient truths she was coming up against, The music was scoring it for her and was kind of helping bring her to that point. And when her husband whispers in her ear and brings her back to reality, it's this reminder that that music is not scoring your fantasy. That is just the sound of the instruments on stage. That is just what's happening in the room you're sitting in. And this man next to you, this is your husband, right? Whereas I think Birth really explores grief and acceptance um, in terms of uh, love and loss in a marriage, 2017's Lady Bird explores some of those same themes uh, in the relationship between a mother and her daughter. You are probably familiar with Lady Bird. It was nominated for uh, for an Oscar in, uh, just recently. It was nominated for um, a slew of Oscars, actually. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, I think Best Original Screenplay, and of course uh, Best Actress, of course, for Searsha Ronan. And, of course, Best Supporting Actress nominee, Laurie Metcalf. Uh, also, two-time Tony winner, Laurie Metcalf. Um, Laurie Metcalf. I mean, uh, if you're not familiar with Lady Bird, I mean, really kind of the what you need to know about it. It's it's really that sort of classic coming of age story of um, Christine Ladybird McPherson, you know, 17 years old, played by Saoirse Ronan, coming to the conclusion that she is she's too big for this nest. You know, they're they're living in early 2000s Sacramento, California. Um, fun fact: uh, from 2016 uh, to the middle of 2017, for a year and a half, I lived in Sacramento, um, which was a very different. Uh, you know the city's changed a lot of things since whenever this was set, but the um, the whole concept of this this ennui that that Lady Bird is feeling and this feeling that it's like the Midwest of California, I absolutely understood that. I really um, I knew what she was talking about. My experience was very different, but. I also, for different reasons that were not Sacramento's fault, I was very much stuck there, and then came to the conclusion that I needed to leave, and I needed to go to New York, which is, of course, what Lady Bird ultimately does: is uh, goes to college in New York. And this, of course, um, is really, you know, requires a surrender from her mother, Marion, played by Laurie Metcalf. In that, I think the real idea is that her mother kind of never expected her to advance beyond where she how far she's come you know I mean that the story that we see of Lady Bird's parents is that like they're still living in the starter house that they bought however many years ago and she's still a nurse at a hospital and and she's you know one of those veteran nurses that she probably has some seniority in terms of picking her schedule but she's still working nights you know uh she, she doesn't have the cushiest schedule you know and, you know, her father is, um, out of work and looking for a job and just kind of becoming outmoded, you know, in a world that, that, that is valuing youth and is valuing, uh, you know, looking towards fresh minds and not really interested in, in experience. And there's just this very realistic, um, relatable feeling to the world that they live in and the the sense of stuckness that they all kind of have. And so for Lady Bird to break out and to to go to NYU or I think that's where she goes in any event to go to New York, you know, it's interesting. It's like in a way she's kind of betraying the family story, you know, and I think we we really see her mother struggle with with her doing that, with her spreading her wings uh, kind of against her will and against her expectations. But you know, I would imagine there's a deeper story of reflecting back, you know, that that Lady Bird was potentially living a life that her mother wasn't able to, you know? And this all really culminates in this amazing scene when Lady Bird's parents are taking her to the airport. Thank you for driving. You're welcome. You're not coming. You can't walk up to the gates anymore anyway. Yeah, but I'm going to college. Well dad'll walk you to security. Parking's too expensive here. And so what we really see here is is Marion stubbornly holding on to uh, whatever this is, whatever is coming up for her and and driving away. Um you know, and we see, we, we see this, this shot of her, the camera is positioned uh, where we're kind of watching her through the windshield of the car and we're seeing this. Now, Laurie Metcalf, let's just stop right here and say that like, well, before I was talking about, um, you know, Nicole Kidman and kind of how surprisingly expressive that she is and how I don't really expect it. I think that Laurie Metcalf is quite the opposite. I think that she has, master the art of the frown, truly nobody gets more out of a frown than Laurie Metcalf. And it's so perfect for this role and for this character and for this woman who, you know, is just wearing her exhaustion like a, like a parka in August, you know? She couldn't take it off if she wanted to, you know? And I think in this scene where we're watching her drive away and we're watching... I think the exhaustion of this fight, of this ongoing fight we've seen with, between her and Lady Bird the entire movie and most of their lives together, I think it's this moment where Marion realizes that this is a lose-lose situation. She doesn't wanna lose Lady Bird, but what she's choosing to do in, in, in honor of that is a guarantee she's gonna lose her. Lady Bird may go to New York and flourish, and find herself, and figure it out, and she should, she should have the opportunity if it's presented, but if Marion is just going to shut the door, and is just going to decide that this is it, then she's only guaranteeing what she doesn't want, and when we see that start to come to her, when we see her come to that realization, it's it's such a, I mean, I call it just like such a mom moment, it's just this like Oh, shit. You know, it's like, oh, no, no. Like, the 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 deep instinctual understanding of how important her relationship with her daughter is takes over in a way that I think the same way that, like, mothers lift cars to get their kids out from under it. Like, that same thing takes over. And then she is suddenly figuring out, oh, my God, how do I turn around? How do I go back? How do I get back to that moment? She's risking the loss of her daughter and this is her last chance to fix that you know that's how it feels in this moment and i love this moment where she's she's turned around she's figuring out how she's figured out how to get back to the um to the departures gate and it makes me think of of marion as the nurse having to try to keep her calm in an emergency sort of situation and she parks the car, you know, just pulls over to the to the, you know, to the curb and runs out. She's she's weaving past people coming out. And the way that the scene is set up and the credit really goes to Greta Gerwig and to Laurie Metcalf is really the the whole setup of this moment is that we're following Marion coming into the airport and then rounding the corner and we know from her face, we know from her body, we know before we see that in some way she knows it's too late. And everything just kind of slows down it's like it's like she's just run out of batteries and her she just starts to cry and slumps forward and then just we see her just kind of moving into her husband's arms and you know and he is being exactly what she i think what she needs what i would need in that moment is just he just says it's okay <laughs> it's okay she'll be back it would seem i have a thing for scenes of mothers coming to realizations and conclusions Um, certainly based on my next choice which of course comes from the 2000 film erin brockovich Um, now you might be expecting that this is a julia roberts erin brockovich scene perhaps the scene in the car where she's on the phone with george and he's telling her about how her her baby daughter just said her first word and she missed it because she's kind of Jonah taking on the whale of pg and and hexavalent chromium and all of that. And I love that scene. And I I do think that Julia Roberts gives a great performance in this movie. I think that she gives certainly a memorable, iconic one. Maybe not the same kind of... This may not be the, the heavy lifting that Meryl Streep was doing in Sophie's Choice, um, but it is uh, certainly, I think, probably a recognition of Julia Roberts' career. I think sometimes an Oscar is representative of kind of your efforts, you know? And this is maybe the closest you're, you've gotten to this point to actually getting an Oscar. But wasn't she nominated for Steel Magnolias for Best Supporting Actress? So not for nothing, Best Supporting Actress. Um, but I figured, or, or I realized that, the, that what struck me even more uh, it's this great scene when Erin goes to Hinkley, the town that's, um, you know, basically been getting poisoned by PG&E um, through their water supply, and, um, you know, of course Erin has taken on this huge case that she's stumbled onto, um, working at this law firm, and has realized that this sort of strange real estate case she's been sorting through is actually something so much bigger and so much darker, and this is of course all a true story. Um, and so one of the, the biggest tasks that she has to take on is connecting with this community of people, these um, sort of uh, rural, you know, California community of, of people who aren't necessarily going to trust someone showing up in a suit and a tie and a lot of legalese, you know? And so Aaron is kind of the perfect person to connect with these people. And one of the people that she really connects with the most is this woman, Donna Jensen, um, who has been dealing with a, a host of health issues um, and, you know, but yet has been told by her by her doctor that it has nothing to do with their water supply and um that they should not have any questions about PG and E trying to buy them out. Um and so Erin is really kind kind of trying to help her see like the really awful truth that um not only uh, is her water absolutely the cause of all of her illnesses it's it's just gotta be different than than what's in our water because cause ours is okay. The guys from, from PG&E told me they sat right in the kitchen and, and, and told me that it was it was fine. I know, I know, but the toxicologist that I've been talking to, he gave me a list of problems that can come from hexavalent chromium exposure. Everything you all have is on that list. No, no, no. No, that's, that's not what that's not what our doctor said. He said that, well, that one's got absolutely nothing to do with the other. But PGE paid for that. The the credit, really, that that goes to, in the scene, Mark Helgenberger, which is a series of G's and R's. um, And I give her lots of credit for sticking with that name uh, and not softening it for Hollywood. She's certainly been successful. Um, She is, um, I don't think she gets enough press in this movie. And I don't really even think she was nominated for many awards, maybe a couple, but not a Best Supporting Actress uh, Oscar. And I think that she, I think that her performance in this movie is is award-worthy. And for me, it really stems from this scene where Aaron is really kind of helping her see the truth. And of course, you know, Donna is, yeah, she's doing that thing where she's like, oh no, like this couldn't happen to us. Well, that's not, maybe that happens to other people, but that doesn't happen to us. And we all do that, right? We all think that these awful things that we see happen in the world, you know, are, are not going to affect us. Like, oh, that's just way too terrible. That's too much for me to take on. And when Aaron is able to kind of connect the dots for her that like PG&E has been paying for her doctor so there's no way her doctor is going to give her an impartial truth. Uh, the camera really holds on uh, on Donna and really lets us see her go through what really is an, an incredible grief cycle you know and, and I was talking about before Tony Collette in The Way Back and uh, this is very similar in that we're watching uh, we're watching Donna just process this and she She is, of course, stuck at denial. She's been stuck at denial for a while. And we can see the bargaining cross her face. And I don't even know if I can explain how I see it, but I see this thing where she she kind of just opens this door and, like, looks in to see if maybe bargaining might work. And, of course, bargaining doesn't work. And I think when that doesn't get her anywhere, I think she gets cornered with reality. She goes to anger and acceptance at the same time. And my favorite part of this face journey is this micro moment where you see the truth connect for her. You see it settle in and you see it lock in. And she does this kind of like, you know, almost like turn to the side a little bit. And it's just, it's this like, oh, damn it, kind of moment. And we see something similar with Laurie Metcalf in Lady Bird, when she, but it—it's a it's a realization that she, oh my God, I'm about to like, I'm about to miss a golden opportunity. And for Donna in this moment, it's shit. It's true, and I've kind of always known that. And there's so much disappointment in that, and I think that's so fascinating. That's what I think excites me the most about that moment, is the disappointment. And once that settles in, it's like then she starts to, she returns to reality, similar to Nicole Kidman in Birth. She she comes back to reality by hearing her kids' voices outside, playing in the pool. Of course it's it's too late. They've been bathing, they've been drinking this water, like they've been playing in this pool all afternoon, but Donna jumps up and she and she runs outside and she's like telling them get out of the pool, get out of the pool. And like I what I love about that is it's so illogical. And that's exactly I think how grief works sometimes. Is it makes no fucking sense, but it's like I just got to do this. I just have to do this thing. I just this is this is what I need to do right now to get control over this situation. Ashley! Shannon! the pool! Because I said so, that's why. Well, if you were looking for something a little more uplifting after that segment, you're in luck, cause next up we're talking about Vera Drake. <laughs> which of course is not uplifting at all. Vera Drake is the 2004 movie starring Imelda Staunton, uh, who was nominated for an Oscar, playing the titular role of Vera Drake, a mother and wife in 1950s uh, Britain, who is uh, performing abortions for women. She she sees this as she is um, she's helping these girls. What she sees are people who are in distress, who are scared, who are um, needing some support, and she's there supporting them. I love the perspective that it's bringing. I love the humanizing perspective that it's bringing. I love Vera's commitment to seeing these women as human beings. But the scene that we are discussing today is when the police arrive at Vera's home, where she's currently, I believe her daughter has just gotten engaged, and they're having, you know, a a party with the family. And she is, you know, she is kind of in the middle of her life you know, and the police arrive, and her husband answers the door. the The husband is very interesting in this scene when he opens the door and the police are there. He he really captures that that experience of of when something so jarring happen happens that you you don't even react in a way. You you just kind of freeze and you kind of are inside of yourself, watching something happen, and you're kind of just automatically happening as a robot. I mean, what's so cool in this scene is. The police are saying, you know, we need to question your wife, and uh, he says, oh, well, um, we can't right now. We're We're having a party right now. We'd like to have a few words with her, if we may. Oh, well, we're having a party. My daughter's just got engaged. Celebration. I'm sorry about that, sir, but we do need to talk to your wife. What about? I can't tell you that, sir, but it is a serious matter. I talked about in the last segment about the illogical nature of grief, and here it's just, again, the illogical nature of shock. You know, and, and to go to that place, and of course, um, the police will not come back later. And so um, the husband uh, brings them into the dining room where everyone, the whole family's gathered, and Vera is sitting there, and he says, "Oh, the uh, the police are here." And Vera turns and looks at them, and at that point, that's when uh, the camera holds this uh, single continuous shot, um, similar, you know, similar to *Birth* um, with Nicole Kidman, of, of really just this portrait of, of Vera Drake seeing the police and realizing in first that, okay, the police are here. And then why would they be here? Oh, oh, oh. And it's kind of like that. And what it feels like watching it, it's not much again, like birth. It's not this sort of explicit emoting. It's like there's something crumbling inside of her as if behind her face, everything is just kind of disintegrating. And there's these, it, I think even in a way, you kind of see like her cheeks start to flush and you're like, what acting am I watching right now, Amelda?" And so, you know what I mean? And so it, it's these small little nuances. I, you know, you, you kind of see her breath start to pick up and uh, her mouth. It's, it's like the most interesting frown I've ever seen. I wish I could explain this more eloquently, but here we are in her own way in the same way that we see with Laurie Metcalf in Lady Bird and we see with Mark Helgenberger in Erin Brockovich. There is this version of oh shit that Vera Drake does and it's it's very British, it's very sort of turned inward, it's very quiet. What's so fascinating as well is that the way the scene is set, the the, the shot is held on Vera but we're hearing all of the kind of conversations going on around her. We see her husband put his hands on her shoulder. Um, we we hear them say, oh here, you know, take a seat, or oh, you know, what, what's going on? Like, we're kind of having that experience that her husband had at the door of like, you're inside yourself, watching and hearing this thing happen, and she's like inside of herself, just collapsing, watching and hearing this happen. and. It's interesting, similar to birth, there's this moment then where her husband leans down to whisper in her ear, you know, to kind of say, you know, the police need to you know, speak with you in the other room. And she doesn't react, you know, to compare to Nicole Kidman. She doesn't react. She just starts to slowly lift. And it's this, it's like watching a prisoner walk to the electric chair. It's really, and it's all just in the way her shoulders kind of slump forward a little bit as she rises. It's like she's sinking and rising at the same time. And it's, you know, it's that feeling of knowing, like, I may not have all of the proof, but I know enough to know that I'm probably fucked right now. The final phase journey for this episode is maybe the gold standard of face journeys is very much the mother of all face journeys. Um, I think uh, it is It is certainly one of the most compelling examples. And that is, of course, uh, 1928's The Passion of Joan of Arc and Maria Falconetti's uh, legendary performance as, of course, Joan of Arc herself. Um, This is, uh, as I mentioned towards the top of the episode, this is a silent film. And it's also an incredible use of the close-up. And I think that's what makes this movie, not only what makes it so powerful and kind of so intense and claustrophobic, but I think it's what makes it kind of the quintessential example of the face journey, of what, uh, what an actor can do with just their face. You know, I mean... You can watch the entire movie. It's on YouTube. I mean, it's very easy to find. There's also just, you know, you could just watch a clip of it uh, or a montage of scenes. I think the real value of this movie, but there's a lot of value of it, right? But I think one of the greatest values of this movie is this the demonstration of, of commitment from Maria Falconetti and the... The depth of emotion that she's able to extract from herself, I mean, there's just moments where you're like, when they call cut, does this woman just like, do they need to put a blank o- blanket over her shoulders and kind of like, you know, sit her in a, in a cold, dark room with a, you know, a warm cup of tea? Like, th- she's going through it. I mean, I don't know if it's like Bjork and Dancer in the Dark levels of go through it, but it is definitely... Uh, the silent film version of Dogville. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, oh my God, this girl just can't catch a break. Also, side note, I kind of realized, especially once I got to the end of this list, that boy, a comedy or two would really spice this, you know, whole thing up, wouldn't it? You probably already guessed that The Passion of Joan of Arc is not any lighter than any of the rest of the fair that we've talked about today. But I think it is, um, from a technical point of view, from a performance point of view, I think from that lens, it's it's fascinating to watch. So I kind of send you out with homework. You know, I've already mentioned Sunrise and the Wind as really just great examples of silent films. But I think to kind of get, like, the, the roots of the face journey and the power of the close-up and long takes and letting an actor, you know really just kind of take their time going through an emotional experience. I mean, this is something that like film and TV have, they've, they've cornered the market on. You know, this is something you can't necessarily get from theater. Unless you're in a really small theater, you know, these kind of intense, intimate moments, this is this is what film and TV do best. And I think that The Passion of Joan of Arc uh, sets the standard for that. And much like the other movies that we've talked about uh, in this episode today, I know I keep saying we, I just mean that I'm talking to you. I don't mean that I'm, there's no royal we here. I just realize I've been doing that. And maybe it's because I'm used to having a co-host, but um, I also just feel like it's kind of like, oh, it's, you know, you and I are talking about this. I don't know. Is that just in my head? But anyway, I think that when we look back at these other four films, you can kind of see evidence of a lot of what we see happening there in The Passion of Joan of Arc. I think... The, the work that Nicole Kidman is doing with her eyes, the eye work going on in birth, you can compare that to, I mean, Maria Falconetti and, and the power of the bulging eyes. Uh, if Laurie Metcalf has the market cornered for frowning, then Maria has the market cornered for using your eyes to go all kinds of emotional places. And and much like Laurie Metcalf, there's kind of a willingness to use all the parts of her face to express something, and a lack of vanity in order to do that, not worrying about how it looks, so long as it looks right. I think much like Donna Jensen, much like Mark Mark Helgenberger in... uh, That name is a lot to say, right? But much like her in, uh, in Aaron Brockovich, I feel like we also get to see this this journey through the grief cycle we really get to see someone kind of going to those doors going to denial going to bargaining going to anger and and really kind of like searching for peace when like the inevitable dark truth is kind of just closing in on all sides you know and then i think to compare it to vera drake i think what we also see is is the silence i think that's what's so cool about that moment in vera drake is is the absolute silence of her and how it's all internal and how um, everything that Imelda Staunton is experiencing as this character is going on underneath and you have to just kind of look really closely and I think you don't have to look really closely with Maria Falcadetti but I think when you compare the two you can feel the power of silence you can feel what happens when all they have is their face. And that, my friends, is the very first episode of In the Details, a celebration of nuance. Um, if you would like to reach out to me, if you have any questions, if you have any comments, if you have any recommendations, I am sure I have missed face journeys that you love, and I want to hear about them. I want more of them. I'll do another episode of these. like please bring them on. So you can either reach out to me via email at pod at gmail.com or you can contact me on Twitter at Colin Drucker, which is C-O-L-I-N-D-R-U-C-K-E-R. Um, And uh, let me know what you think. And of course, uh, especially since we're brand new right now, I keep saying, wait, I can't stop doing it. Uh, Especially since I'm brand new right now, uh, heading over to iTunes and leaving a positive rating and a five-star review goes a long way towards uh, helping other people find this podcast. And if you don't have a positive review or rating, then maybe you should email me and let me know what your feedback is because we are in early days, my friend. Lots of things can change. So please let your voice be heard. But, um you know, give me a chance to work with it, right? Anyway, I think that's all. Thank you all so much for going along on all of these face journeys with me today. And I look forward to talking to you next week as we continue to dive into the details and celebrate the nuance.